to our first episode of Ankle Surgery Update, Science Guiding Treatment in 2021. We are starting with great enthusiasm into this year. With several vaccinations available, there is a perspective to tackle the COVID pandemic, and we got excited new research projects coming up. With those good spirits, we decided to spend this first issue on one of our favorite topics, ankle fractures. The first two articles presented in our podcast this year will be Hybrid Fixation for Dennis Weber Type C Fractures with Syndesmosis Injury, published by Kim and Park in Foot and Ankle International. And second, Posterior Ankle Fractures, Predictors of Outcome, published by Bloom and colleagues in the Bone and Joint Journal. We hope you all had a pleasant holiday season and a good start into 2021. Let's start this year with these two exciting papers. Syndesmotic injuries are present in 20 to 30% of all unstable ankle fractures and therefore have a high relevance for our surgeons and socioeconomic. As you all know, syndesmotic stabilization can be done by static and or dynamic fixation devices. Although static fixation by one or two screws is most likely still the most applied procedure, there is convincing evidence that flexible stabilization is superior. Most of the studies published used the tightrope by Arthrex. Although Hans and me both have done paid talks for Arthrex, the data is convincing. Several RCTs from study groups not affiliated to Arthrex were able to show a significant lower rate of malreposition or secondary diastasis for flexible systems. Moreover, there is conclusive data available showing better patient-reported outcome measures. Still, the tightrope is considerably more expensive than a screw, which might be the major reason why a lot of surgeons still use static fixation for unstable syndesmotic injuries. Next, there is a vivid ongoing discussion on when to use one or two suture button, as the tightrope does allow physiological motion at the syndesmosis, which could be considered a strength. It might be providing insufficient stability in grade 3, i.e. highly unstable, syndesmotic injuries. As a consequence, one can either use two suture button systems or, as Kim and Park did, combine one suture button system with a syndesmotic screw. In their retrospective study, Kim and Park included 14 consecutive patients with a minimum follow-up of 12 months who had suffered a Dennis Weber type C fracture with syndesmotic injury. Syndesmotic stabilization was conducted by one suture button system and one syndesmotic screw, termed hybrid fixation by the authors. The patient's average age was 37 years. 11 patients suffered a PER-type fracture, 3 patients a mesonef fracture. The mean follow-up period was 20 months. All fractures were treated according to the AO principles. Fibular fractures were treated using 3.5 mm one-third tubular locking plates through an anterior lateral incision for direct visualization of the syndesmosis. Fractures of the medial malleolus were treated by tension band wiring and deltoid ligament ruptures were repaired. Syndesmotic stability was then tested using both the hook and the external rotation test. Instability was defined as a medial clear space widening of more than 2 mm. The procedure on how the hybrid syndesmotic fixation was conducted is not stated clearly. Based on what is stated and an image chart showing the surgical steps, the authors first reduced the distal tibiofibular joint using a reduction clamp and a quadrocortical K-wire. Then they placed the tightrope, removed the reduction devices and placed a quadrocortical syndesmotic screw without additional tension. 
The screw was not removed routinely after index operation. Different rehabilitation protocols were applied for patients with fractures to the medium malleolus or a deltoid ligament rupture. For both groups, 20 kg partial weight bearing was started at 4 weeks postoperatively and full weight bearing was permitted at 6 weeks postoperatively. Plain radiographic evaluations were performed preoperatively, immediately postoperatively, at 6 weeks and 3, 6 and 12 months postoperatively, and then every year until the last follow-up. Bilateral CT scans were obtained immediately postoperatively and at 1 year after surgery. Mal reduction of the syndesmosis was defined as a 2 mm difference. Radiographic analysis was conducted by two independent reviewers. The patient-rated outcome was assessed using the VAS for ankle pain, OMAS and AOFAS score. Furthermore, range of motion measures were conducted at latest follow-up. At final follow-up, 79% of the syndesmotic screws showed loosening and the remaining breakage. Syndesmotic malreduction, as assessed on CT images, occurred in one patient. At final follow-up, the VAS was 1.7 points, the OMAS 85 points and the AOFAS 90.3 points. The average ankle range of motion was 13 degrees in dorsiflexion and 39 degrees in plantar flexion at latest follow-up. No further analysis were conducted. Thanks, Sebastian. There are several methodological questions that arise from the manuscript. First, the sample size. Second, the actual inclusion criteria are not clearly reported. The authors state that all consecutive patients from January 2016 through April 2018 with a Dennis Weber type C fracture and syndesmotic instability treated by hybrid syndesmotic fixation were included. When reading through the manuscript, it appears that they included bimillular, bimillular-like fractures and mesonef fractures. The actual fracture types, for example per the AO classification, are not stated. Furthermore, it remains unclear whether all patients in that time period were treated by hybrid fixation or only some of them. One could imagine that one surgeon used this method in this time period. This would mean a considerable selection bias. Third, the surgical technique is not explained in enough detail, but it will come to that later. Finally, no attempt was made to conduct some sort of subgroup analysis which might be due to the overall small sample size. Still, I like your paper pick. I like it as the authors address a clinically relevant topic that we have also discussed. Suture button systems have great advantages. From a technical point of view, the two most dominant to me are that they allow some sort of internal realignment of the distal tibiofibular joint and thereby decrease the risk of malreduction. And we can leave them in situ without loosening for at least a year which assures complete syndesmotic healing and thereby reduce the risk of secondary diastasis. Still, one tightrope does not provide sufficient stability in highly unstable, for example, grade 3 syndesmotic injuries. On the other hand, syndesmotic screws provide a higher degree of primary stability, but at a greater risk of malreduction and secondary loss of reduction. So why not combine dynamic and statics fixation and thereby taking advantage of each device's strength? We actually like to use hybrid fixation in mesonef fractures. But in order to take advantage of each device's strength, the surgical technique is essential. Following reduction of the distal tibiofibular joint, the tightrope must be placed first. 
Then one should remove all reduction devices and move the ankle several times to allow for that intrinsic repositioning of the fibula in the tibial incisura. Finally, we simply place a quadricortical syndesmotic screw without additional tensioning. To me, Kim and Park's study should be rated as a technical proof of concept. They did also assess the patient-rated outcome, which was in the range of what we would expect at the follow-up time. Moreover, I would love to see some further longitudinal analysis of the imaging they have conducted. But overall, the paper does manage to drive the point that hybrid fixation is a valid and liable option from a technical point of view, seemingly combining the advantages of each fixation device. We must therefore congratulate the authors for their study. Thank you very much, Hans, for this critical review of the paper, and I very much agree that it is rather technical note. Still, it is the first paper that I'm aware of that provides some sort of scientific evidence for the combined use of a static and dynamic syndesmotic fixation. Stabilization of the syndesmosis is one of the hot topics in literature right now. A lot of different new treatment and rehabilitation concepts are introduced, such as early weight bearing in combination with dynamic fixation and internal bracing for the AITFL. Kim and Park's study does add to this ongoing discussion and does give us more confidence in using hybrid fixation techniques. But I'm sure that the last word on the optimal treatment strategy for syndesmotic injuries has not yet been spoken. The second study of this episode is entitled Posteomalilar Ankle Fractures, Predictors of Outcome by Bloom and colleagues published in the Bonn Joint Journal. The indication for treatment and the effect on the outcome following ankle fractures with involvement of the posteomalilus has been discussed previously in the April episode of our podcast. The historic approach to treat the posteomalilus fracture only when the fragment size exceeds one-third or one-fourth has come increasingly under scrutiny. It is a historic belief dating back to 1940 that the size of the posteomalilus fragment solely determines the indication for fixation. These were times when ankle fractures, even trimalilar fractures, were treated mainly non-operatively. During the last decade, an intensive discussion has begun to question the concept that only the size matters. Today, it is known that the syndesmotic malreduction is a major factor leading to poor patient-rated outcome following complex ankle fracture treatment. Indirect reduction and transsyndesmotic screw fixation has been reported to result in a malreduction rate of up to 50%. Fractures of the posterior malleolus are nowadays considered bony avulsions of the posterior tibiofibular ligament. Therefore, open reduction and internal fixation restores syndesmotic stability and thereby decreases the need for indirect reduction and consequently the rate of malreduction. Furthermore, it has been demonstrated that even a small step-up of the posteomalilus fracture leads to inferior clinical results. This all argues for open reduction and internal fixation of posteomalilus fragments of any size, not only if compromising more than 25% of the tibial plafond. Yet, we are lacking postoperative clinical results following this procedure, especially in combination with the detailed fracture analysis. The primary aim of the study presented was to address the hypothesis whether the fracture morphology might be more important than posteromalleolar fragment size. The secondary aim was to identify clinically important predictors of outcome for each fracture type. 
Therefore, the authors performed an observational prospective cohort study and included 70 patients with ankle fractures involving the posterior malleolus. The authors performed a detailed analysis based on the Haraguchi classification. This classification distinguishes three types. Type 1 are posterior lateral oblique fractures characterized by a wedge-shaped fragment involving the posterior lateral corner of the tibial plafond. Type 2 or transverse medial extension fractures are characterized by a fracture line extending from the fibular notch of the tibia to the medial malleolus. And the type 3 fractures are small shell type fractures characterized by one or more small shell shaped fragments at the posterior lip of the tibial plafond. In the study, 23 Haraguchi type 1, 22 type 2, and 25 type 3 fractures were included. There was no standardized protocol on how to address the posterior malleolus. CT imaging was used to classify fracture morphology and quality of postoperative syndesmotic reduction. Quantitative 3D CT was used to assess the quality of fracture reduction by measuring the proportion of articular involvement, the residual intraarticular gap and step-off, as well as 3D displacement, and the residual gap and step-off at the fibular notch. These predictors were correlated to the foot and ankle outcome score, FAOS, collected two years postoperatively. First, a bivariant analysis was performed and revealed that fracture morphology as well as fragment size were significantly associated with the FAOS. However, in multivariant analysis, fracture morphology and the residual intraarticular gap were significantly associated, but not the fragment size. Haraguchi type 2 fractures had a poorer FAOS score compared with type 1 and 3 fractures. Multivariant analysis identified the following independent predictors. The step-off in type 1, none of the 3D CT measurements in type 2, and the quality of syndesmotic reduction in smaller bars in type 3 fragments. The authors concluded that the prosimalilus fractures should be classified according to Haraguchi into three separate entities. The authors concluded that the prosimalilus fractures should be classified according to Haraguchi into three separate entities based on fracture morphology, as the fracture type is the predictor for the outcome. Type 2 fractures had a worse outcome measured by the FAOS compared to type 1 and 3 fractures. Furthermore, the authors suggested that the current debate on whether or not to fix postimulilus fragments should be redefined to determine which morphological subtype benefits most from fixation. The treatment decision should be rather guided by fracture morphology instead of the fragment size. Thanks Hans for the summary of the paper. I believe the manuscript contributes to the currently intensified discussion about when to fix fractures of the posterior malleolus. The authors performed a remarkable analysis of fractures to the posterior malleolus and correlated these results with the patient-reported outcome after two years. All patients received fluoroscopy during surgery and radiographs as well as CT exams postoperatively. Using a postoperative CT scan, a sophisticated 3D analysis was performed and various variables were calculated. I believe a thorough analysis of the fracture characteristics using 3D CT should be part of future studies because we know that a 2D analysis and especially X-ray examinations are not sufficient to understand, describe and quantify the fractures of the posterior malleolus.
This is also the reason why we, in clinical practice, always perform a CT scan prior to the surgery in order to plan the procedure. This is also my first point of critique. As far as I understand, the patients did not receive a CT scan prior to the operation. I then wonder how did the authors decide which fragment to fix and which not to fix. And this leads to my major point of criticism. The study lacked a standardized protocol on surgical decision making. All patients were treated following surgeons' preferences by different trauma and orthopedic surgeons. This resulted in an extremely heterogeneous cohort with different fracture patterns and different operative techniques. Namely, in some cases, the posterior malleolus was fixed using a closed reduction and internal fixation by AP screws, while in other cases, open reduction and internal fixation was performed either using screws or plates, and in other cases again, the posterior malleolus fragment was not fixed at all. The authors tried to turn this into a strength of the study, calling it a natural experiment. Nevertheless, I'm convinced this is a major flaw. We know from our own studies and many others that it makes a great difference whether we perform open reduction and internal fixation or closed reduction and internal fixation or nothing for treating the posterior malleolus fragment. Open reduction and internal fixation not only results in a significantly superior quality of reduction of the posterior malleolus fragment, but also significantly reduces the need for transyndesmotic fixation. Furthermore, in terms of reduction and the necessity of transyndesmotic fixation, it does not seem to make a difference whether the posterior malleolus is treated by closed reduction or not treated at all. Consequently, it does seem inappropriate to mix these different treatment strategies. Furthermore, the authors conducted a thorough bivariant as well as multivariant analysis of various parameters. Unfortunately, the operative strategy was not amongst them. It seems obvious why, because the groups were so inhomogeneous in terms of operative treatment that a sufficient statistical analysis was not conductable. So Hans, what did we learn for our daily practice? I think, Sebastian, although this study once again did not answer the question whether patients have a better clinical result when we perform open reduction and internal fixation for posterior fractures, it still strengthened our concept to fix fractures of the posterior independent of the fracture size. We both fix these fractures whenever the size of the fragment allows for it, driven by the concept to restore the posterior tibiofibular ligament and to restore the incisura, as well as the dorsal aspect of the tibia. Yet, we urgently need a comparative study using pre- and post-operative CT analysis, comparing different treatment strategies for posterior fragments of varying size and morphology, with a correlation to mid- or better long-term clinical results. That's it for today. Thank you very much for listening to Ankle Surgery Update, Science Guiding Treatment. I hope you all had a good start into 2021 and we hope you're going to tune in next time.